out for Children's Church. Those that would like to, that is. We pray for God's blessing on our children and on those that teach them and care for them. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, today I am beginning a series of sermons on the doctrines of grace, what some people refer to as the five points of Calvinism. These doctrines of grace focus on the question how can a person be saved? How can a person be saved? And I think that is the most important question that could be asked by any one of us. How are we saved? Does God save sinners or do we save ourselves? Does God do some of the work of salvation and then we do the rest? Are we saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Or is the gospel a gospel of grace or of grace plus our works? Before the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches had deviated far from the teachings of Scripture. They had added to Scripture the teachings of men, of popes, of bishops, of councils, until the salvation that they were teaching became one of faith in God plus works done by us. One problem with that teaching, besides being unbiblical, is how do we know when we've done enough to earn our way to heaven? Well, the answer is nobody did know. No one could be assured that when they died, they would go to heaven. During the Reformation, men such as Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, William Tyndale, and many others returned to Scripture alone as the final authority for faith and practice. This resulted in the recovery of sound doctrines taught by Jesus, by the apostles, and by the early church fathers. These included the teaching that God is absolutely sovereign over his creation, including over men and women, boys and girls, and over salvation. They rediscovered that the scriptures taught that it is indeed God who saves, and he does so according to his own will. Moreover, they came to understand and teach that God indeed saves us by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone not according to any good within us or any good that we do. And as Pastor Don said earlier, thank God for that truth. This was a radical departure 
from what the church had taught and practiced for hundreds of years. And therefore, it was not accepted by many. These teachings were later challenged by a Dutch seminary professor named James Arminius and his followers. They drew up five articles of faith based on his teachings and they presented them to the government of Holland as a written protest against the teachings of the reformers. Their five articles stressed the free and self-determining will of man, which led them to deny that God predestines any to salvation, and the teaching that Jesus died only for the elect, those who God had chosen. A national synod or council was called to meet in Dordrecht, Holland, starting in November of 1618. They were charged with examining the five points of Arminian teaching against what Scripture taught. In other words, take these doctrines and go to the Word of God and see if they were true. The synod was made up of 111 delegates, scholars from Holland, Germany, Switzerland, England, and Scotland. They met in 154 sessions over a period of seven months so that they could carefully consider these very essential doctrines. And in the end, they rejected all five points of the Arminian teaching as being against what the scriptures taught. Then they issued their own findings of what the scriptures did teach in a document called the Canons of Dort, which contains the five doctrines of grace, called by many the five points of Calvinism or TULIP. TULIP is an acrostic, the letters of which stand for the doctrines that were most disputed. T stands for total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. And P, the perseverance of the saints. Now these may not be the most accurate or even wise titles for these doctrines, but as we'll see over the next few weeks, it made for a convenient way to remember them. It's easy to remember the word tulip and then try to remember what each letter stands for. Now I want to stress that these teachings, these doctrines were not created by the reformers or by the Synod of Dort. They are exactly what we find taught in Scripture by Jesus, by the Apostle Paul, by the writers of the New Testament. The Synod simply verified and affirmed the teachings of Scripture. They affirmed this, that salvation is a divine work of grace from beginning to end. Adam's fall had affected the entire human race such that all human beings were born spiritually dead and their wills were in bondage to their sin nature and to Satan. Therefore, the ability to believe the gospel is itself a gift from God bestowed only upon those whom God has chosen to be the objects of his unmerited favor. 
It was not man, but God who was sovereign. It was not man, but God who determined and predestined sinners to be shown mercy, to be given saving faith, to be regenerated, becoming born again by the work of his spirit. This is what the Synod of Dort affirmed, and they affirmed that this is what the Bible teaches. These teachings can be summed up in one sentence. If you remember nothing else from this morning's sermon, I want you to remember this one sentence. God saves sinners. God saves sinners. Our God is the one who saves us by his grace. Now, this entire teaching is based on the presupposition that our God is sovereign. So that brings up the question, is God sovereign? Is God fully in control of all of his creation? Is he sovereign over all things? Is he sovereign over nature? Is he sovereign over human beings? Is he sovereign over salvation? Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith states it this way, quoting, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That's a mouthful. One sentence. What it is telling us is this. What God creates... He also sustains and controls. This universe is not only dependent upon God for its origin, it depends upon God for its continued existence. It is in Him that we live and move and have our being. R.C. Sproul, commenting on this, wrote these words. The central point of the doctrine of providence is the stress on God's governance of the universe. He rules his creation with absolute sovereignty and authority. He governs everything that comes to pass, from the greatest to the least. Nothing ever happens beyond the scope of his sovereign control. He makes the rain to fall and the sun to shine. He raises up kingdoms and rulers and brings them down. In a universe governed by God, there are no chance events. End quote. He is also known for saying, quote, there is not one random molecule in the universe. Is God sovereign? Yes, he is. But I do not want you to take my word on this or even Dr. R.C. Sproul's. Let's look at what the scriptures tell us about God's sovereignty over nature, over human beings, and over the work of salvation. Because this is vital to our understanding why this makes a difference. So, God is sovereign over 
nature. Let me read to you a few passages from the book of Job, chapter 37. Job 37, verse 3. Under the whole heaven, he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. Job 37, 8. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. They've been experiencing that in Arizona and Nevada recently, haven't they? Job 37.10, by the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. Job 37, verses 11 to 13. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Now, you might ask yourself, Pastor Steve, why is it important for us to talk about the weather? Because what the writer here in Job wants us to see is that not one raindrop falls except by the command and control of God. And it either falls or doesn't fall for his express purposes to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Note the phrase, to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. And then in verse 13, The writer tells us, he, that is God, causes it to happen. God didn't just create the universe, wind it up, and then let it go. And so, storms happen just because of the natural effects of heating and cooling and climate change, etc., etc. If there's climate change, do you know who's in control of that? God. If there's drought, you know who's in control of that? God. If there's flash flooding, you know who's in control of that? God. There's no way around these truths. We find these truths throughout Scripture. In fact, Jesus himself told his followers that their Father in heaven makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He was teaching them that God is in control over all of nature. He reinforces this teaching in Matthew 10, 29, when he makes this statement. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Indicating in the context, the father's absolute sovereign control over all aspects of his creation. Patty and I have a hummingbird feeder in the backyard uh, just off the patio. And we absolutely love to watch those hummingbirds come and feed. They are absolutely incredible creations of God. Amen? Just absolutely incredible. Amazing. I could go on for a while about the the amazing creation of the hummingbird. 
that defies any form of evolution, folks. But you know what? God created each one of those hummingbirds and they fly on his timing and they drink exactly what he's ordained them to drink. Nothing in creation happens except by the sovereign control of God. The Father has absolute control over all aspects of his creation. And that's very comforting, isn't it? Very comforting. But what about over human beings? Are we not free moral agents? Can we not do whatever we decide to do? What does God's word tell us about his sovereignty over human beings? Well, let me tell you this. The Bible repeatedly affirms that God is sovereign over people. It speaks of God making the Egyptians favorable towards the Israelites at the time of Joseph. It speaks of God hardening Pharaoh's heart towards Moses and God's people. It speaks of him moving the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to fulfill God's plan. And of causing King Nebuchadnezzar's official to show favor to Daniel and his countrymen. In each of these cases, these individuals are doing what they choose to do. Unawares that they're doing exactly what God wants and needs them to do. Because he is sovereign. He is in control. One of the strongest assertions of God's sovereignty over people is found in Proverbs 21.1, where we read these words. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Now the king, remember, is the sovereign. There is none in the country who is more powerful, more determinative than the king. And the writer of Proverbs says, God is the one who controls that king. God is the one that turns his heart to go where God wants it to go. He turns it wherever he wills. So God directs the hearts of men, women, boys and girls, even rulers to accomplish his purposes according to his divine will. God's sovereignty over the hearts of people doesn't mean their decisions always turn out as we desire, but they always accomplish God's divine purposes. God often allows malicious and hateful people to act in ways that can be harmful to others, but still ultimately accomplishes his divine plan. And we need to be grateful of that truth. Because we see it over and over again in Scripture. One of those places we see it is in the case of Joseph. Remember Joseph? Remember his wonderful brothers who were just so loving towards him? Right? Listen, there's no question that his brothers acted spitefully and maliciously in selling him into slavery. Remember, originally they were going to kill him but decided to make a little profit. And there's no question that Potiphar's wife acted viciously in falsely accusing Joseph of rape. 
so that he was cast into prison. There's no question that each of those involved acted out of their own free will. None of them were forced or, co- or coerced by God to do something that they didn't want to do. But as they did so, they were doing exactly what God had foreordained. We call this concurrence, which states that even when we act out of our own will, God's sovereign providence stands over and above our actions. He works out his divine will through the actions of human wills, for he controls their hearts. Joseph would later say to his brothers, quote, So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. God had used their evil actions to accomplish his good purposes. Joseph later made this statement to them, quote, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Genesis 50, 20. This example of God's sovereignty over human beings is seen time and time and time again in Scripture, culminating in the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot, leading to his arrest and his crucifixion. All of this, we're told by Luke in Acts 2.23, occurred, listen to this, quote, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Close quote. God was in control, even over the greatest evil that's ever been done in the history of mankind. The crucifixion of the sinless Son of God, Jesus. It was God's plan for that to happen so that you and I could have forgiveness of our sins, so that you and I could be credited with his righteousness. God is sovereign. He is sovereign over all the affairs of human beings. All that we do results in his perfect will being accomplished and his plans being fulfilled. So God is sovereign over all of creation, over nature, and over the lives and actions of human beings. So then does it not make sense that he is also sovereign over the salvation of men and women, boys and girls? I mean, he's either sovereign or he's not. You can't be like 90% sovereign. So, the doctrines of grace teach that God is sovereign over salvation. Do the writers of the New Testament tell us that God is sovereign over salvation? Do they indicate that he is the one who chooses who he will save, and he saves them, and he keeps them as his own? Well, yes, they do, over and over again. I'd like you to open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm only going to highlight two passages, Ephesians 1 and Romans 9. Those two are sufficient for the purposes, I believe, of showing you God's sovereignty over salvation. As you read it, 
Think about what Paul is explaining here to us. Because we are not the first people in the history of mankind to question how is it that God can control things. We're not the first ones to question that. And so look at what he writes. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. No mention there at all of God asking us what we want. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantor of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Nowhere in that passage does it say you and I had a choice in these matters. Now, do we choose to follow Jesus? Do we choose to trust in Christ? Yes, we do. Absolutely. So do we make choices? Yes, But those choices we make because God is sovereign. Because he has set his love upon us. Because he ultimately is the one that controls the hearts of human beings. And he draws us to himself. Remember, no one is ever brought into the kingdom kicking and screaming against God. God works in such a way that we want to trust him. We want to love him. We want to believe in him. There's a day when we don't, and then there's a day when we do. Amen? What's the change? God. I didn't suddenly get more wise. I didn't suddenly get less self-centered. I didn't suddenly uh, have greater control over my sin. It wasn't I. It was him. And if you look at this passage carefully, and I'm not going to take the time right now, it's he, it's him, it's he, it's him, it's him, it's he. It's all about God being the one who saves. And if that's not sufficient, Let's turn over to Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 26. In this passage, 
Paul is actually defending the sovereignty of God over salvation. That's what this passage is about. Who is it that chooses who will be saved? Who is it that controls who is loved by God and who is hated by God? Who is it that controls the mercy of God as to who it is given to? Well, this is what the Apostle Paul writes, starting in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who have descended from Israel belong to Israel, not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they had not yet been born and done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul says, listen, God is the one who chooses what he will do with his creation, what he will do with the lives of those he creates. He's sovereign. He's God. He has a right to do with us whatever he wills. And he will. And so he determined of the twins, one will serve the other. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, God says to Moses, I'm God. I'm going to choose who I show mercy to. And then Paul goes on, verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Folks, I don't think that can be more clear. It does not depend upon human will. And we talk about the will, we're talking about choices. Remember back when I mentioned concurrence. If we make a choice, we're making the choice because God is moving us to make that choice. Does it appear that we're making these choices by our own free will? Absolutely. Absolutely. God did not speak to me this morning and say, Pastor Steve, wear purple. A purple shirt and a purple tie. He didn't didn't do that. I did it because I wanted to. But guess what? This is what he intended me to wear today. And you might say, oh, pastor, that's silly. He didn't care what you wore today. Really? But he cares how many hairs are on my head? He knows those are getting less and less. (laughs) Used to have a forehead. Now I have a six head or so. 
Do you know the average human being has 140,000 hairs on their head? And the scripture said God knows each one of them. Make no mistake. There is not one random molecule in the universe. God's in control. And I'll tell you in a few minutes why that's important. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has the mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up. This is God speaking. For this purpose I raised you up, that I might show you my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now we have a hard time with that. We do. We have a hard time with thinking about God not saving people by his own choice. Hardening them by his own choice. We have a hard time with that. But that's what the scripture tells us. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Praise the Lord. That's what happened to me. I was not his people. And then he called me to be his people. So I guess what? I was his people, but I didn't know it. Because I had been chosen in eternity past and predestined to become his people on the moment that it was his will for me to do so. I didn't get saved one day early or one day late. But exactly on the day, hour, minute, second that God had foreordained. Because he's sovereign. He's sovereign. So apparently, in these passages and many others, the Bible wants us to understand that God is sovereign over salvation, which is exactly what the doctrines of grace teach us. In fact, let me share with you this summary statement of the doctrines of grace. It will be on the screen. Salvation is accomplished by the almighty power of the triune God. The Father chose a people, the Son died for them, and the Holy Spirit makes Christ's death effective by bringing the elect to faith and repentance, thereby causing them to willingly obey the gospel call. Note that, willingly obey the gospel call. The entire process, election, redemption, and regeneration, is the work of God and is by grace alone. That is an excellent summary statement of the doctrines of grace. Thus God, not man, determines who will be the recipients of the gift 
of salvation. Make no mistake, our God is sovereign over salvation. God saves sinners. The Father electing, the Son redeeming, the Spirit calling and regenerating. God does it all from beginning to end. And he does it all by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is really the one point that the five points are concerned to establish. That sinners do not save themselves, nor contribute to their own salvation. But that salvation from beginning to end is from the Lord. And therefore, all the glory for our salvation is due unto him. Amen? I cannot take any credit for my own salvation. As Pastor Don said earlier, if it had been left up to me, I would still not be saved. I actually thought I was saved until I was saved. And many of you experience that same thing. But God. And so it is all to the praise of his glory as it should be. And so in closing, I want to just briefly talk about why this is so important. Why is it so important that we understand the absolute sovereignty of God, which is found reflected in the doctrines of grace? Well, I want to share five reasons with you. First, the doctrines of grace are at the center of God receiving glory. We believe that these doctrines, rightly understood, are the foundation for a God-glorifying, Christ-centered, spirit-saturated, scripture-based theology. They keep us radically God-centered instead of man-centered. God deserves all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor for our salvation. He saved us to the praise of His glorious grace we saw that three times in Ephesians chapter 1 it is all to the praise of his glory second the doctrines of grace provide for a strong faithful confident and joy filled church when people catch a vision of the undeserved, freely given, life-transforming power of the grace of God, they respond in joyous faith and in worship of the God who chose them in eternity past and then provided for them a Savior, then called them to Himself and caused them to be born again by His Spirit. That results in joy and in a longing To not only worship Him, but to please and glorify Him with our lives. It is with joy that we sing His praises. Amen? And when we understand that we are here today as His children, because of all that He has done, He receives all the praise. Third, these doctrines also fill us with faith and confidence that the cause of Christ will triumph in this world. 
The scripture tells us this, that his purpose will stand and he will do all that he pleases. God's sovereign electing work does in no way diminish missions or evangelism, but it provides the motivation to engage in them. Despite all the obstacles involved in the missionary task, we know that God has purchased for himself people from every tribe and every language and every people group and every nation. And we know that he will bring them in. He will bring them to salvation. They will hear his voice and they will follow him. Isn't that what Jesus said? My sheep hear my voice, they follow me. So the cause of the gospel will succeed. Amen? Praise God. Praise God. Nothing can prevent all of those chosen by God from coming to salvation. That's the hope that we have when we share the gospel. Not that we do such a good job at it or that we convince someone or we argue them into the kingdom, but that God is going to use our feeble efforts as his witnesses, as his lights, and he is going to empower that through his spirit to bring all of those chosen to salvation. They will hear his voice. They will follow him. The cause of the gospel will succeed, and all of those chosen by God for salvation will be gathered in. Why is this so important? Fourth, the doctrines of grace motivate us to pray. We could spend an entire hour talking about this point alone. We, listen to me, we do not simply pray for the lost to come to their senses and to choose on their own to receive Christ. Think about it. None of you prays for the lost that way. We rather pray that God will open their blind eyes. That God will cause them to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That God will change their hardened hearts. That God will give to them saving faith. That God will cause them to be born again. Isn't that how you pray for the lost? You don't pray, God Cause her to be born again if she wants to. You don't pray that way. You pray for God to sovereignly intervene. Right? To invade that person's heart. And to take control. And bring them to salvation. We pray that God will change their heart. That he will cause them to be born again. We do not ask God simply to make salvation possible. For this individual, we pray that God will save them. All the while knowing that it's God's perfect will that will be done. And his will is alone wise and perfect. Why is this so important? Fifthly, the doctrines of grace and divine providence are a comfort to us. In times of suffering. This world is a frightful place. And horrible sufferings occur on planet earth. 
The book of Job that we read from earlier teaches us that no suffering occurs. Even that which Satan brings about apart from the will of God. Not a sparrow falls to the earth apart from God's will. The inference is that absolutely nothing happens that does not pass through the hands of God. The perfect will of our Heavenly Father. Now I'm not saying that our sufferings will not be painful. I'm not saying that we will not question or experience grief. But I am saying that all suffering is purposeful. There is no action, no event, no suffering that can ever occur outside of God's all-encompassing good and wise plan. Even when we don't understand it, we can trust Him who does. We can absolutely trust God. And that's why when we read a passage like Romans 8.28, it tells us all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. We can trust our all-knowing, all-sovereign, all-powerful, and ever-gracious Heavenly Father to work through all things so that we will be more like Jesus, His Son. God is able to work all things together for our good. What a glorious promise that is when we go through difficult times. Listen to me. The world is not spinning out of control, although it seems that way sometimes. No, God is in control. He is guiding it according to his own wise and perfect plan, which gives us, his redeemed people, great hope and confidence. Amen? For these five reasons and many more, it is my desire that each one of you come to know and understand the sovereignty of our God over all things, and especially over our salvation. I want you to know the truth. The truth will set you free. Amen? Let us endeavor with God's help, by God's grace, to understand His sovereignty and how that applies to every aspect of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this opportunity for us to think about your sovereignty. You are our creator. You are the one who sustains us. You are the one who is in control of your creation. And even though, Father God, we cannot even begin to comprehend that, we take great comfort in knowing it. That whatever happens, Father, you are in control. That things are not out of control in our life.
or in our country or in this world. But you, Father God, are sovereign over all things. And I pray, Father God, that you will help us to grow in this understanding from your word so that we can rejoice in your grace, your mercy, your goodness. And yes, Father God, even in your wrath, for those are all a part of your divine attributes. And Father God, we thank you for the opportunity we have today to praise and glorify you for the work of salvation that you have accomplished in our lives. If there are any here today that do not yet know Jesus as Savior and Lord, I pray, Father God, that even this very day, you would draw them to faith by your Spirit, that you would cause them to be born again so that they too might know the hope and the joy and the peace and the love of being your children. Father God, we trust you with these things and we give you thanks for them in Jesus' name. Amen.